Thank you, Chris. Thank you, praise team, for leading us and reminding us of what's true and inviting us to sing about it. If you are a, uh, if you have children who've registered for our children's worship, uh, they can be dismissed over to our workers here in the back. Um, for those of the children and teenagers who are remaining, we're really glad that you're here. You're invited to take notes and to, to follow along. Um, there'll be much for you this morning as well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, we will focus our attention this morning on four verses, starting in verse 13. First Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. This morning I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, and you'll find those words of that translation here on the screen. Let's hear God's word. This is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you've also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. Will you join me in praying that God would do what he pleases in our hearts? Oh, Father, we have your word, and we trust that we have your spirit, and so we have all that we need for you to bring glory to your name and to change hearts. So, Father, I pray, pleading humbly, that you glorify Christ in our midst today. Let the words that we hear stick in our hearts and be effective to produce change. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And our goal when we, un, when we read and study an ancient letter, one that is inspired by God, our goal is to understand first what was Paul saying? What did Paul mean? And then to think about what does that mean for us? And how should we live differently? And so if we're going to understand Paul's message, we have to understand uh, we have to remember what's going on here. This is a letter that was written to a church that had been planted by Paul, and he suddenly had to leave. Acts chapter 17 uh, tells us of these events, where in short, Paul and Silas came and preached the gospel in Thessalonica, and guess what happened? People got saved. Believe it or not, that's what happens when people preach the gospel. They got saved. Some got saved, both Jews and Gentiles, but others just got mad. That happens too. Acts tells us that the Jewish leaders, when they saw what happened, they became jealous and insecure and angry. 
They were so disturbed by the gospel change that was taking place that some of the leaders said, these men have turned the world upside down. This began a season of persecution and social rejection that surprised the believers there at Thessalonica. Apparently, this rejection grew so intense that Paul and Silas had to leave. They actually left in the middle of the night. But the church there at Thessalonica, they couldn't leave. They couldn't escape their suffering. So they had to learn how to adapt and thrive in the midst of rejection. So Paul's letter is written to a church like that. A church that was experiencing difficulty. He wanted to encourage them in their ministry and in their walks with the Lord. And I think that word encouragement is probably one of the dominant ideas here. This, the idea of, of being encouraged in your walk. In fact, we can organize these verses around three encouragements. Let me give them to you now, and you can listen for them as we go. The first would be something like this. Church, be encouraged. God's word is at work among you. God's word is at work among you. The second would be, be encouraged, your rejection is normal. It's normal. And finally, be encouraged because justice, justice is coming. But as we offer, as I offer this word of encouragement to you this morning, I do want to be very careful and very clear to say that this word of encouragement is honestly not for everyone. If you're here today, and like verse 13 says, if you've received and welcomed the word of God, you should be encouraged. And I hope that you leave here encouraged from hearing God's word. That is, if you are a Christian, you should be encouraged. But if you're here today, and if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I just want to caution you, this is not a word of encouragement for you. And that you shouldn't leave encouraged. In fact, this text will be scary for you, more scary than encouraging. And even though that may not feel like a welcome, we want to say we're really glad that you're here because we want you to hear this message. And I trust, I pray, I hope that you will hear me out because today over the next 30 minutes, you're going to have an opportunity to hear and receive words from God. So we're really glad that you're here this morning. In fact, this whole passage centers around two types of people, two categories of people. People here are not grouped by their identity, such as gender. They're not grouped by uh, ethnic identities or sexual identities. They're certainly not being grouped by identities of oppressor or oppressed. Instead, in this text and in God's word, image bearers are grouped by how they respond to God's word. That's what matters about you, that you're made in the image of God and how you respond to God's word. Will you receive it or will you reject it? We see this here in verse 13, that there are people who accept the message as a word from God. And then there are others who receive it merely as a human message. Do you see that? Some hear it as God's word. And others hear it as something made up by man, maybe to appease the weak-hearted or to satisfy the guilty conscience. 
But this is where Paul begins his encouragement. So let's look at this together. The first word of encouragement is to be encouraged. The word is working. You'll notice here in verse 13 that Paul is praising God. That's why it's encouraging. He's, he's praising God because the Thessalonians, when they heard the word, they received it. They welcomed it. They accepted it. On the other hand, there are others who heard the word of God, but they didn't welcome it. Some heard the word and received it, and some heard and rejected it. But the Thessalonians, they they welcomed it. And that's exciting for Paul because that means if they've welcomed the word, that means that it's working. It's effective. Do you all see that word in the text there in verse 13? If you receive this word, it works. It is activated. It is effective. It is powerful in you. And it's a wonderful word for us. Because that means that for even though Paul left, the power supply was not turned off. That even though the messenger is gone, the agent for change, the word still remains. Because that's where the power is. You probably know that the Bible says that God's word is living and active. It's sharp, like a sword with two edges. It's been fined and it's able to pierce and cut into you to the very bone. We are all longing to be known, to be seen, to be loved for who we are, to understand, to have someone truly know us. And the Bible tells us that that's what God does with his word. It reveals who we are. So we should hear it and understand that it has power. There's a pattern here. For those who believe, the word is working. If you believe, the word is working. The word is doing its work of shaping, of changing, of convicting, of cutting. In fact, we should be careful to note that Paul is saying the mark of the Christian is really twofold here. The Christian is one who has, yes, received the word, but also has it actively working in him today. Do you see that? You see, in our day and age, there is a sense of confusion. I fear that we have confused true conversion with a decision moment. A moment where someone says, yes, I want to follow Christ. And, and we've said all that conversion is, is saying a prayer or asking Jesus into your heart or saying this one thing. When Paul is saying that it is more than that. Yes, there is a particular instance where a profession is made. But then we often fail to expect God's word to work continually. To truly receive Christ means that, yes, you have that moment of decision. It may, been, it may have been at vacation Bible school when you were a child. Or sitting, for me, sitting on the side of my parents' chair during family devotions. But after that decision, following Christ is followed by 10,000 reaffirming decisions to receive God's word and let it work. A few weeks ago, my family had the opportunity to go to the beach for a couple of days of vacation. And of course, at the beach, we had the chance to swim in the ocean. It was so much fun. We were thankful for the chance to go. And on the way down, uh, my wife and I took on the task of explaining to our three children uh, the, the science behind ocean currents, right? 
We were explaining what a current was, how it worked, and of course, 38 reasons that they should be careful. And they were listening. They're like, yeah, yeah, you know, we got it. I got a mom, got a dad, currents. Okay, we'll be, be careful. Okay, great. But nothing was more effective than watching them get into the ocean and experiencing the power of an ocean current, right? We've all had this, hopefully. You get in, in front of the beach chair and the cooler and the towels, and then five minutes later, you're 30 yards, or if you're the Outer Banks, 70 yards down shore, right? It's, and then you realize, oh man, there's a power here that I didn't really notice. They realized that if they didn't pay attention, that powerful current could transport them to North Carolina, which isn't a bad thing, but I don't want my children to be swept by the ocean there, right? This can help us think about what it means to accept or to welcome the powerful work of God in our lives. It's not merely enough to admit that it exists or to admit that we believe in it. We need to let it sweep us away. Friends, there are some of us here who claim to be followers of Christ, and God's word has done so little to change our lives. That is a dangerous and frightening, alarming thing. To be a Christian is to welcome and let the powerful current of God's word work in us and change us. And that's something that happens every day. We need to let it sweep us away. The day after day that as we wake up, we let the Lord take us where he pleases by his word. Just real practically, that means that you're reading God's word. It means you're reading it, receiving it, seeking to adjust your life to it. It means you're studying the Bible with other Christians and on your own. It means that you want to be in a church where you actually feel when you're not here, you miss it. And you want to be here so you can hear God's word and sing his praises. But it's more than just wanting to hear it. It's 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 an attitude of cooperation. I want God to have his way with his word in my life. God wants to reshape and conform and change your life according to his word. And that's what he wants to do right now, whether you're interested in it or not. You see, if we're, for Christians, we're not constantly fighting against or holding on to the shore. We're not digging our feet into the sand, not wanting to move, but instead we warmly welcome. We eagerly accept this powerful, transforming work in our lives. And for those of us who, if you're like me, and you still see sin, major areas of sin in your life that you've been struggling with and you need to grow in, oh, this is encouraging. Because we have what we need for God to do his work in us. So we should talk about it. We should get in fellowships and relationships where we ask other people about it. We should expect it. We should strategize about it, and we should certainly celebrate it when we see it in others. God's work is, his word is at work among us who believe. The second word of encouragement is that we should be encouraged. Rejection is normal. Be encouraged. Rejection is normal. This might seem a little surprising, but if you follow Paul's logic, I think you'll see what uh, is going on here. He says in verse 14, that the Thessalonians have become imitators of other churches, other suffering churches. And that's a way of saying, has following Jesus made your life harder, Thessalonians? You're on the right track. 
Has following Jesus made your life harder? Well, then guess what? You've joined the club. He starts broadly with the churches in Judea who seem to be suffering at the hand of the Jews who were hostile and angry at Christ and his message. And Paul himself, we know, was a part of that persecution. He gave much of his life to persecuting this message. But Paul keeps on going to say there in verse 15 that not only do the Jews persecute the churches, but the Jews persecuted and murdered Jesus. And not only that, before that, they persecuted the prophets. In fact, the rejection of the prophets is really is something, we need to understand that to be a rejection of God's word. A rejection of God's word. That's a major theme in scripture. We've seen this a few times recently. And Jesus himself recognizes and points out that it's a theme. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 31, he tells the Pharisees, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, you're acting like your forefathers who hated the prophets for the word they said. And the word they said is the word of God. And you hate it. There's a pattern of rejecting God's word, especially among the Jews. But do we not see this pattern in our own lives? There are people here today who are trying to decide, will I despise the word of God or receive the word of God? two categories of people. And his point here is that for those of you who have accepted this word, Thessalonians, now that God's word is in you, is it really a surprise that you're being rejected? The people of the world reject the word. This should not be strange. It should be expected, and it will continue. Part of growing up as a child in the Moore household is mandatory enrollment in what has become known as Mommy Academy. Mommy Academy is where you learn all sorts of things from letters and numbers and math facts uh, to laundry. And they, I came home and found out one day they dissected a deer leg, right? So if you want to ask about deer anatomy, ask my children. My boy Roman was, is getting ready for preschool, and he was, uh, he's been working hard on his patterns. He He's got this workbook, and you've probably seen these, and the workbook will give him a pattern, and then it will ask him to predict what comes next. Right? I'm not going to put him on the spot, but it'd be something like this. Orange, orange, apple. Orange, orange, apple. Orange, orange, what comes next, church? Apple. Right? See? Right? Well, there's a pattern in the Bible. Follow Christ, the world will reject you. Follow Christ, the world will reject you. Follow Christ, tell me, church. So why are we so surprised? Peter says specifically, for to this very thing, you've been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And yet it seems to me that the church in America, that American Christians are freaking out that the world doesn't like us anymore. Orange, orange, apple. If you follow Christ, you will be rejected. This is so, it should be so expected. In fact, one scholar I was reading was asking, scholars ask odd questions, but he was saying, why is it that Paul focused on the churches in Judea? Right? That's like saying all the churches in this one big region, well, they were all suffering. And he's saying, why point them out instead of one church or one instance? 
it seems a little bit odd. It seems that Paul is basically saying, basically all the known churches in the world, well, they've all been suffering, and so now you're a part of that club. We see Paul was certainly referring, by saying the Judean churches, he's saying the churches closest to Jerusalem, and the churches of the Jews. And basically he's saying the very first churches to exist in all the world, guess what? They suffered. There's, an es- there's a sense of where these are the first fruits of Christ's work. All that Jesus promised, all he did, all he accomplished, the church sprang into existence, empowered by the Spirit at Pentecost, given the, the teaching and the word of the apostles, and guess what? They suffer. From the very beginning, the church has been rejected. Our, and friends, this should not be strange to us. It's normal. We should expect it. In fact, this is our calling. I would even say Paul wants us to be encouraged. Because being rejected by the world just might mean that we're doing something right. What's scary is when they like us. Rejection has been the pattern from the very beginning. We should not be surprised because we follow a rejected king. For much of church history, Christians have understood this. We are really one of the few eras of church history where there's been any semblance of, re- of acceptance in the culture. The other day I was reading about a 23-year-old Christian sister named Galena. Galena, had, was, she was like the Thessalonians. She had come to hear and receive and welcome the word of God while living in the Soviet Union. And God's word was powerful and active in Galena's life, so much so that she became a Sunday school teacher. Galena had been changed and wanted to share this powerful message of transformation with others. So Sunday school teachers do. But in the Soviet Union, being a Sunday school teacher is a crime. So Galena, so committed to this work, was thrown in prison, where she was beaten and starved for her gospel work. So what do you think Galena did? She led many in her prison to the Lord. (coughs) So the Soviets didn't like this, so they transferred her. They transferred her to a new prison. So guess what Galena did in her new prison? She led many others to the Lord. So guess what her guards did? <laughs> they transferred her again. Guess what Delina, Galena did? Apple, apple. She led others to Christ. So finally, they threw her on a train to Siberia because apparently you can't lead people to Christ on a train to Siberia. So guess what Galena did? She sang. She sang. In the words of Tim Cassie, she said, he says, As the condemned in their cages rumbled on through the Siberian vastness, the din of cursing and fighting was broken by a clear, sweet voice of singing. It was Galena singing of her Savior. A hush fell over the train car. Even the most hardened criminals turned away their faces to hide their tears. And mile after mile, hymn after hymn, Galena sang the gospel. Christians, take heart. 
Rejection is not strange. It is the pattern. It's the pattern for those of us who follow Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. But as we face our suffering, we must not forget the power of the word. <clears throat> You'll smile with me to know that today, Galena still lives in Siberia. She didn't take a train back. Now she is the wife of a pastor where she continues her gospel work. But it's amusing to me that she's no longer in a prison camp. You see, the Soviet Union, which was once hell-bent on destroying Sunday school teachers, it no longer even exists. When you put the Soviet Union up against a 23-year-old Sunday school teacher, who's going to win? Friends, you cannot stop our God. This power of this word that we're talking about, this is no trifle. This is real wattage. His kingdom will advance, but it will advance through suffering. And so, Christian, if you're going to take on the name of Christ, you must do so knowing you cannot take his glory and skip the road of the cross. concerned about this in our culture. I'm concerned about this in our church because I fear that so many Christians have bought into the lie that following Christ is supposed to make their lives easier. And so they become surprised when being a Christian makes their life harder. It seems confusing, like God's not blessing them or something. You see, people want to follow Christ. They claim they want to follow Christ, but they don't really want Christ. They just like the idea of heaven. And so I want to encourage you, if that is all that your faith is, you need to ask yourself, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? You can't want the promise of heaven and then deny and refuse the way of the cross. <coughs> While this applies to everyone, I'd like to ask if I could just um, talk to the teenagers and the young folks who are here for a moment. If you're in middle school, if you're in late elementary school, I'd love to speak to you for just a moment. You're growing up in a world that is different than your parents. You know this, you're pro you probably remind them of this frequently. You're growing up in a different world. And if you've committed to following Christ, you must count the cost. Following Christ is probably going to mean spending your life as a cultural outcast. And yet you're in a time of your life where the most important thing to you seems like being a culturally accepted person. You can't do both and follow Christ. You need to be honest with yourself and ask, are you willing to do this? Are you interested in this? Is Christ worth it to you? Are you willing to be called intolerant? Are you willing to be called a bigot, a homophobe, just for submitting your ethics to Christ your Lord? Christ was rejected too. And if you really claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be rejected too. And the text says we should actually be encouraged for this. Because not only does it prove that God's word is working and active and dwelling in us, and not only does it mean 
that we get to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering, but it also should encourage us because, number three, justice is coming. Justice is coming. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice has been used a lot today. If you look down at verses 15 and 16, Paul continues to show ways that the Jews are opposing them. Verse 15 says that the Jews were displeasing to God. They were working to prevent Christians from sharing the gospel. You'll notice that Paul equates that with opposing, even hating mankind. It is hateful to prevent people from hearing the gospel. It is hateful to not open your mouth and share the gospel. The world thinks we hate them because we call sin, sin. Yet the way we really show we hate people is by not calling sin, sin. And by not speaking of a Savior who redeems us from sin. Because of this, Paul says this curious phrase here in verse 16, that this is working so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. Do you see that? If you've got your Bibles open, look down, find that phrase in verse 16, filling up the measure of their sin. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a measure of sin? In the Old Testament, this is an idea that appears in several places. It's used multiple times for nations or persons that resist God and resist his redemptive plan. For example, in verse 15, God is, or in, sorry, in Genesis 15, God is speaking to Abraham and he tells him, I've got this great plan for you, this wonderful promise, but it's going to be put on hold until the sin or the iniquity of the Amorites, a pagan nation, is complete. He's going to delay keeping his promise to Abraham until the Amorites had sinned the fullest. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 8, says something similar. He says that there will be a time marker when transgressors have reached the full measure of their sin. And I want you to have these words in your mind because they're critically important. The idea is that the enemies of God, those who have resisted God, have a specific, definite, limited amount of time for which God will tolerate their sin. And then when time is up, God will act. In verse 16, that's what Paul's saying. He said, wrath has come on them at last. Time is up and then God will act. Now I'm not exactly sure what, what the Jews were experiencing in that day to be presently experiencing the wrath of God. There's different ideas. There was famine at the time. There was political turmoil. There was a rising uh, difficulty for being a Jew. I don't know what it was, but for us, the lesson is very clear. The wrath of God is coming, friends. The wrath of God is coming. God will come and judge those who oppose him. And for those of us who follow Christ and are opposed for following Christ, this doesn't scare us. It actually excites us and encourages us. Because it means that that day will be vindicated. And if that seems really odd to you, it might be because you don't experience much opposition. But there is a vindication that is coming for those of us who follow Jesus Christ. Justice will come. Satan and all of the world will not benefit in the end for denying Christ. Those who enjoy the pleasures of the world now will not in the end have more pleasure than the Christian. 
justice is coming. And this is a word of comfort for us. In fact, one of the major themes of 1 Thessalonians that I'd love for you to pay attention to is that for those who follow Christ, we constantly celebrate that we don't have to fear the wrath of God. If you've got your Bible open, you probably are on the same page. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says, Paul's speaking of Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Safe from the wrath to come. And then at the end, chapter 5, verse 9, he closes with the same idea that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that if you've placed your faith in Christ because of his atoning work, you are safe. That's a word that encourages us. But it's also a word that sobers us. Because, friends, that means that some of us here may not be safe. If you're here today and if you are unwilling to follow Christ for whatever reason, there's danger ahead. Maybe you don't want to give up your love affair with the world. You have found some sort of sin that just tastes so good and you can't imagine life without it. Maybe you are convinced the world has so much to offer that you can't walk away from it. Maybe you are unwilling to be opposed by the culture. You just cannot imagine being called a bigot. You can't imagine your friends not liking you. You can't imagine being ostracized at work and you're not willing to follow Christ. Maybe you are just not willing to identify with Christ and his cross where Jesus took the wrath of God for sin that you don't think that's for you. If I could just if I could just say it as clearly as possible, if that is you, the wrath of God is chasing you down. It is coming for you. God is waiting and God is patient. And right now, today, in this moment, you are in that very short, very limited period of time where God will permit sinners to defy him and not kill them. Right now, the world is filling up their sins to the limit, and you may be a part of that. But there will be a moment, there will be a time where it ends. The clock is ticking, and time is limited. Wrath is coming, and unless you turn from your sin, the wrath of God will overtake you. You cannot outrun him. You will not out-trick him. You can no more outrun the wrath of God than you can outrun an avalanche at Glacier National Park. You can no more outrun the wrath of God than you could outrun a T-Rex in the movie Jurassic Park. You can no more outrun the wrath of God than you could outrun the mushroom cloud of an atomic bomb. The wrath of God will overtake you. And unless you turn to Jesus, you will be consumed. Friends, I'm not here to be hateful. I'm here to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus alone can withstand the atomic bomb of God's wrath. And he's the only place where you can be safe. And there is a great urgency. If you continue to sin, thinking just a little more pleasure, and then I'll follow Christ, then I'll let the word work, well, you need to know the fuse has already been lit. Turn to him today and be saved. For those of us who are already safe, who have already made our way into the bomb shelter of Jesus Christ, where we are safe from God's wrath, there's a different urgency that must haunt us. 
That's the task of evangelism. You'll notice that in this text, there in verse 16, Paul speaks of Jews who are hindering Christians from speaking to the Gentiles. And the implication is very clear that if Christians don't speak, Gentiles won't get saved. If Christians don't speak, if we don't open our mouths like Galena, then no one will be saved. So the question that I have for us is who is hindering us? Who is keeping you from opening your mouth to speak the gospel? Tell me, where's the empire? Where is the nation that Satan has raised up to silence our gospel work? Or could it be that our generation is so lazy and so apathetic and so ashamed and so cowardly in evangelism and more concerned with likes on Instagram that we have done little to attract Satan's diabolical attention? Church, how are you fulfilling the Great Commission? How is the kingdom of God advancing through your personal life? What kingdom is standing against us? And what could prevail? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this word that works should give us courage. We must not be lazy and we must not be ashamed. Instead, we should be strategic and intentional and prayerful to open our mouths and speak of how we have escaped the wrath that was coming for us in our sin. That is why Trinity exists. The question is, are we doing it? As our worship team comes forward, I realize that this is a a heavy message. It's a message of encouragement, yet it's a message of wrath. And I want to issue a word of invitation. I believe that God's work is is at work among us today and that God is calling every person who is here to respond to his word. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, at the end of the service, I want you to know I'm going to be standing down here at the front and I would love to have the opportunity to come talk to you about what it means to follow Christ. And if you're unsure, if you've been living Christ and, you, th- and you, you're, you're, you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you've not seen God's word working in you, you should be unsure. And you should come talk to me or one of the pastors or one of the people around you as well. And for those of us who are followers of Christ and see God working, the altar is open for us to come and pray. Ask that the Lord would make his word at work. Ask that he would make you bold in evangelism, and in suffering. So whether you come to the altar now or whether you come later, just talk to the Lord. Wherever you are, let's respond to him now as we sing.